As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always in Zoom conference by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, the Mets are not playing well. I don't, I don't know if I'm the one breaking this information to you, but the Mets have not been playing well. The Mets are now in third place after sitting in first place for, for the overwhelming majority of the season. And people are demanding a sacrifice. Is Luis Rojas safe? Is Zach Scott safe? Is Sandy Alderson safe? Uh, I don't know if we're safe. I thought you brought a lot of energy to that intro. I wasn't sure if you would be as chipper as you sound. You came across, certainly, uh, more chipper than uh, the, the Mets did in their one and six road trip to Miami and Philadelphia that has dropped I'm always... I keep it balanced, right? Like, I find there's, there's good in this life still, even <laughs> if it's not the Mets. <laughs> yeah, you know, smile. Um, as Pete Alonso said. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think we're going to have um, a lot of firings in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I think Why not? <laughs> Thank you for for interrupting that quickly. Um, I, I think I mean, it would be like you've got in, in Luis Rojas, you've got let's take it one by one. Let's start at the top with Sandy Alderson. Uh, that, that's not something that's going to happen in season. Um, that is you know, like, you know, perhaps team, there is a team a president. Yeah. There's a reevaluation of the team president. Uh, at the end of the season, uh, you know, obviously the the off season last year did not go according to plan on numerous levels. You know, they didn't hire the the president of baseball operations that they expected to. Uh, they didn't hire the GM they expected to. Well, they hired a GM and then had to fire him. Uh, so they're really, you know, they're working with an acting GM who would be, would have been third on their hierarchy had had the off season gone according to the initial plan that Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson had. Uh, there was uh, the, obviously the Porter firing, the Callaway news, other uh, news about how the front office was run uh, in the past, including under Alderson, uh, that was not positive. Uh, and, and in general, none of those things have gone uh, well in terms of, of overhauling the culture. That is a years-long process. It did not get off to a good start. Uh, Zach Scott is still the acting general manager. Uh, I think uh, the Mets still like him uh, and, and as an executive. Uh, you know, They haven't named him the general manager yet. Uh, I don't know if that is uh, something that you presume is going to happen this this off season, uh, but that I, I mean, 
I'm a little surprised. It's weird. Like, why are we still bother with the acting? Like, is it is it is it a matter of like money? Is he not getting paid as a as a general manager? Because it seems strange to just like have that tag, even if even if he's not going to stay the general manager past this season. Um, like, it's very strange the, the to leave that acting tag on for so long. I don't know the dynamics that go into uh, acting versus interim versus actual general manager. Uh, but it is strange that he has been the acting GM for uh, six and a half months now. Uh, he's not acting. He's, he's not acting like whole. a. He's not acting like a good GM. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I I think there's going to be a reevaluation of the entire front office structure this winter. Uh, and I, while I would say like my expectation is probably that Alderson and Scott are still part of it going forward, uh, I can't rule out the possibility of. Uh, Steve Cohen doing something differently or looking at, uh, okay, who is, uh, you know, I brought in Alderson as a team president to get me a good president of baseball ops. That didn't work. Maybe there's someone else who could do that. Uh, someone else who wants a, a, a larger role. Uh, with Luis Rojas, he's not under contract beyond this season. Uh, I think if this team finishes in third and just kind of sputters along, goes 81 and 81, uh, I think it would be, it'd be, the Mets would probably make a change there, you know. Um, but, uh, I don't think that's something that happens again in season. They don't have like a set person to step up and take on that role. Uh, you know, Dave Jouse is the bench coach. Uh, I don't think is a guy, you know, he's a guy who doesn't have any managerial experience. Uh, I don't try to think, I don't think anyone on there. I mean, he did, he did real experience. It was Dave Jouse who put James McCann in that pinch hitting opportunity that, that won that game. Remember that was like the biggest game of the year. <laughs> McCann pinch hitting for Nito who Nito was in there for his bat and McCann pinch hit. Under and and we don't know if Rojas was really maybe calling the shots from somewhere deep in the clubhouse tunnel, but uh, I will credit Dave Jouse with at least one game's worth of of pretty good managerial exp- experience. Yeah, so I I don't expect them to be making a change in season with Rojas, although uh, you know like the fact that he's had to manage the entire year as a lame duck, you know most managers do not get put through that, uh, suggests that they they you know are evaluating him actively. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's a change made there. Uh, in the offseason if things continue as they're going on. Uh, as for me and you, I'm not sure how the the producers are evaluating us. Uh, hopefully we're still in this role by the end of the week, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, everything's day-to-day. We're all day-to-day. Uh, with Rojas, you know, like, it's, I, I, I it's, I understand that it is like a, a century-old baseball tradition to fire the manager because you can't fire the players, but it's so hard to figure out how this could be re- like, and it's not like every button he's pushed has been the right one, but it also feels like I think a lot of people expect a manager to be turning over tables and, and all this other like sort of old school Leo DeRocher stuff. And that's not the game today, you know? And so I, I don't, I, I, it's weird to me to say like, Oh, Rojas has got to go because I just don't, I can't feel confident about that. Like, and this is the same guy who, when they hired him, everybody's talking about how, how impressive he was, how, what a great relationship he had with so many of these players from coming up through the system. He wasn't, as we know, he wasn't their first choice for manager, but uh, a guy who was undoubtedly an up and comer. And he's a guy, you know, he's so young that it's so easy to imagine the Mets. Um, and this will reveal something, I guess, about every Mets fan's inherent paranoia, but it's so easy to imagine like, Luis Rojas gets parts ways with the Mets. He wouldn't even have to get fired if he's not under contract and lands somewhere else where he becomes like that team's extremely successful manager for the next 15 years. 
Well, I mean, Ted, if this team had Wally Backman managing them, they'd be ahead of the Giants. They'd right be running now. through brick walls. Running through brick yeah. walls. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's it's really it's always hard to judge uh, a manager like how good a manager is. Uh, as a beat writer, I've always found that one of the more difficult things to do. Uh, it's especially hard now uh, because we're not in the clubhouse, so you don't get a sense uh, for how the team feels about the manager. Uh, because you know, if you ask a player on a Zoom conference how he feels about the manager, uh, it's, it's you're going to get a certain kind of answer. You're not going to um, get one of those like telling eye rolls you sometimes get amid like a quote that says nothing, but like you can tell from the body language what this means. Right. There's, and there's no way to go up after and, and have a, a smaller on background conversation about how, how they really feel. So uh, I, I think the sense that I still get uh, in so much as you can get one is that the players do like Rojas uh, and that uh, he gets uh, the most out of them. I, th- I think we're going to get a sense of uh, like I thought uh, the post game on Sunday did not strike the right chord from either Rojas or, or Alonzo for that matter. Uh, in the kind of like, you know, we're hitting the ball hard, we're right there. Uh, and that's, it's fine for them to say that to the public. It's like uh, shades but- of the Tom Glavin, I'm not devastated thing, where it's like, of oh, course, cool, he shouldn't be devastated. But <laughs> as a fan, I'm devastated. And like, I kind of want you to be respectful of that. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's fine if they're saying that, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to win you a lot of fans at a time like this. Uh, but you would hope kind of behind closed doors that they are, uh, expressing it with a little bit more dismay that this isn't, you know, one week of them, uh, hitting into some bad luck. It's, it's just, it's tough to say we're stinging the ball. We feel really good about it. Uh, when you hit five balls out of the infield and 30 plate appearances, you make 22 outs that are on the ground pop-ups or strikeouts in a game. Uh, as the Mets did on Sunday. So uh, you you hope behind the scenes it's a little bit more urgent um, because it's not just like, I think under normal circumstances, if you have a stretch like this at this time of year, you say, okay, you've got a series coming up against Washington, you get back into it. But that schedule coming up with LA and San Francisco for two weeks uh, without Jacob deGrom for that stretch, likely without Francisco Lindor for most, if not all of that stretch. We don't know if you're going to have Javi Baez now for for all of that stretch. Uh, you just went one and six on the road in Miami and Philly. What are you going to do in seven games in San Francisco and L.A.? Uh, you know, you can look at that 13 game stretch and had the Mets had that four game lead going into it, you'd say, OK, you can survive going five and eight and you'd be OK. If you're four games back and you go three and ten, uh, you're in a, a, a world of trouble there. And it's it's already late August at that point. So I think we're going to get a sense of how much. Uh, Luis Rojas's even keel approach uh, plays in the clubhouse at a time of real crisis uh, during a baseball season um, and and how the team responds to, you know, they've responded well to adversity within games earlier in the season, uh, within the season, you know, after that, that series in Tampa where they got swept and they lost McNeil and Conforto the last day they came back and had uh, a nice stretch for the two weeks after that. We're going to see how they can handle this one because this is this is when you need to uh, be at your best as a team and as a manager, and, and we'll get a, a better sense of where the Mets are uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think just to go back, you mentioned Sunday's game and the offense. I would say that one doesn't bother me as much as the rest of the week, if only because, um, and this doesn't even bother me. It, it maybe I'm sure it bothers some Mets fans because it came against Zach Wheeler, and and Wheeler is ha- is has got to be at this point the the Cy Young favorite in the National League, um, and I. I don't know if this is because I met 
Zach Wheeler a bunch of times and always found him a, a pretty pleasant guy. But like, I have no Met fan angst about Wheeler being awesome this year. Like, I'm fully full on happy for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it it makes you more angry at the Mets right. because you could you like. You know, I, I think there was a, a section of the fan base that was like, "Good riddance! This guy had a 100 ERA plus over even over his career." And, but all and the signs were there. All the signs were there. But, yeah, I think if you watched him, like, uh, I feel good because in like June of 2018, I was like, you know, I think Zach Wheeler's really, really doing something here, <laughs> really turning it around, even though the ERA didn't suggest as much. And uh, here we are, uh, a couple of years later, and he is. I mean. Uh, it might not be the best pitcher in the National League on a per-inning basis, uh, but he's so far ahead of a lot of other guys. You know, he's he's pitched 43 more innings than Corbin Burns. I'm looking at the, the Fangraph stats. Uh, that I, yeah, I would probably say Wheeler and, and Walker Bueller are probably the two guys that you'd put at the head of the list for the NL Cy Young. And the Mets will, will presumably get to see Bueller at least once in the next next couple of weeks. Yeah, and this West Coast co- trip, which you mentioned, coming against the the class of the National League, the defending champion Dodgers in there, teams that I think present you know models as we've discussed in the past, models for what you want the Mets to be like, and so. You know, on one hand, maybe they show some pluck and and compete against these teams, or on the other, maybe uh, we all get a sense of of uh, the distinction between your third place, very middling Mets roster, and you know what a bona fide World Series contender looks like. Yeah, and look, the the Phillies have the Dodgers first this week. Uh, LA starts that road trip in Philadelphia on Tuesday. Uh, and then they get the Reds over the weekend, who are playing really good as well, uh, or playing really well as well. Uh, can't lose the grammar here. Um, so, you know, you get a sense of Philadelphia built its winning streak against the Mets and the Nationals, teams that are not playing well uh, or good. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see how uh, those teams, how Philly does against those teams. Then you see how the Mets do against those teams, uh, against L.A. at least, uh, and, and kind of compare them and juxtapose it for the next two months you know there, there is a sense like it's very easy in the moment right now to think the season is over uh that, that two and a half games is too much uh the way philadelphia is playing uh but i i still like atlanta might be the team you're more worried about in the east because they've kind of put it together as well and now they're ahead of the mets too they're again they're a half game ahead of new york uh at the moment as we're recording this monday uh so uh you know the the phillies might be peaking too early they have kind of that feel to them a little bit uh, but the Braves are, are a team that that's also right there, uh, and it's just it's it's get it's a lot harder to figure out exactly how the Mets are going to be in a good spot on uh, whenever that that two week stretch ends, so uh, August twenty uh, seventh or so, uh, moving forward in the NL East. It kind of feels like the Mets peaked too early, and like their peak just wasn't very high. <laughs> yeah, the seventeen and nine May where they had a, a seven game winning streak, a five game winning streak. Uh, it, it they've been basically. Uh, a mediocre team every other point of the season uh so they'll they'll have to try to find the, you know i've been waiting for them you know we thought when everyone came back healthy at the beginning of july like this is this is where they can go on their run they had that seven game stretch around the all-star break against pittsburgh where you thought if you go six and one there you really build a cushion like if they go six and one in that stretch instead of three and four they're uh their trade deadline day lead in the NL East is seven and not four. Uh, and I don't, you know, if you're the Phillies and you're seven and a half back, because they were an additional half game behind Atlanta, 
are you making the Kyle Gibson trade? You know, are you doing things the same way uh, that you did? And the Mets, they, they missed out on the opportunity uh, on the opportunity to really bury those teams, including Atlanta with that five-game series right before the break, uh, right before the deadline. Uh, and they've let those teams stay in it long enough to make the uh, improvements that uh, they needed to make, and now they've kind of leapfrogged the Mets. Can we get Brandon Drury some more at bats while he's still hot? Like, is it is it crazy to say like maybe there needs to be just even and even if it's not like a permanent thing, but just like shake up who's playing a little bit to try to jar something loose in this offense? I mean, we saw that Saturday, right? That yeah. was where they went with the right-handed lineup against Ranger Suarez, uh, and I thought that uh, I didn't love. I liked parts of that idea, but I didn't love the complete execution of it. Uh, I would have. Uh, switch the lineup more aggressively i would have had like you know they, they pinch hit conforto for drury in the fourth inning uh i would have pinch hit dom smith for kevin pilar in the fifth when when the right-hander was in there um just to to give those guys um uh, more of a platoon advantage so we've, we've seen them try to mix things up I, I don't think that's something they would have done three weeks ago if they were facing ranger suarez in the same circumstances uh but because of the way the team had hit they tried something different and that also did not work yeah, I'm. I'm glad you brought up Pilar because like it's and I hate to like everybody's no one's hitting right, so you, you hate to single out guys. We know Pilar seems like everybody really likes him. Uh, he did he had the cool thing where he got hit in the face and he came back then and wanted to play the next day. Like I get that he's a popular guy in the clubhouse since the start of July. Pilar has a 4.23 OPS, and I feel like every time I turn around, he's a bat. Yeah, uh, it's been. Really outside of the the big home run he hit uh, in Cincinnati in that 15-11 game. Uh, it's been a, a tough stretch for him since the All-Star break, maybe even a little earlier than that. Uh, that he just hasn't been able, you know, since he basically went back to part-time play, uh, it's been really hard for him uh, to find his offensive rhythm again. Uh, and, you know, that, that was kind of the case with a lot of those part-time players was it wasn't like they were posting 850 OPSs. The, the OPS for Kevin Pillar was never that high it was it was you know maybe right around 700 at its peak uh jose peraza it was never high but they seemed to come up big when they needed them to late in games or off the bench uh, and now they're not getting those those contributions bite your tongue not just from the bench guys but from anyone bite your tongue this uh, jose peraza is out with an injury right he is still as far as i'm concerned he is still the the most clutch guy in the world he's just i i think that you can maybe chalk up this this little uh this little losing streak here to the absence of uh of Jose Peraza and his 600 OPS or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, the shine has not dulled on him quite yet. There, there is still the chance that he comes back uh, and leads them to the NL East Championship. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. 
We have a, a couple of questions. Uh, you mentioned grammar, and so I want to, before, we have a, a really good question from Matt, which is not to dismiss Adam's really good question. It's just Adam sent in a question uh, that is not based on the Mets' current uh, disappointing, perhaps existential performance. Adam just wants to know, he says, I have a grammatical question for a couple professional writers. Questionable on my case. Uh, is it grammatically correct to say, I'm watching the Met game, or should it be, I'm watching the Mets game? In which case, should Mets be possessive plural, I'm watching the Mets apostrophe game? Uh, so, you know, I, uh, this I is think a all three, style guide all, question, really. <laughs> to me, all three are fine. Uh, if I were writing it, uh, I would probably go with Mets not possessive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I always try to, whenever, whenever I run into that, I'm never sure exactly. Uh, if I'm unsure of it, I'll, I'll use the magic because that's a singular word. You know, if I'm trying to say like, oh, the Mets pitching uh, has been bad lately. Like, right. what would I say if it were the magic? The magic's pitching has been bad. Okay, use the apostrophe. Yeah. Um, in that case, uh, I think because it works both singular and plural, <laughs> that it, it, you can go either way. Like, you're watching the magic game or the magic's game. They're both they're both fine. So I think it works possessive and non-possessive. You would uh, say you're watching the magic's game? You wouldn't I say mean, that. that is, I, don't, I don't think colloquially you would say that, but I think it would make grammatical sense. Yeah, it would. It would. I, I say, for me, I would say, yeah, the Mets game, no possessive. But if I was saying like the Mets right fielder who is one for 15 and his legs or whatever, then that's clearly a possessive. Um, I would, my... My bone to pick with the 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 issue, or I guess, and and I I say again, I say the Mets game, but I feel like no one would ever say I'm watching the Yankees game. Everybody's just like I'm watching the Yankee game, um, and so again, it's like a, a colloquial thing. But it it sometimes it just it it's a it's got to be a touch and feel thing for me. Yeah, it works you know differently for different franchises and just the way it sounds, you know. Uh... Like, it's easier probably to say the Magic's game than, like, the Jazz's game. <laughs> That's just too many, too yeah. many uh, consonants there. Uh, so, but I, I think in general, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to watch the Mets game later. That, That's probably how I would say it. Yeah, and and you would be correct. So, um, I think to, to answer Adam's question, we go with Mets. We go with watching the Mets game, but no possessive. And, and one of the important. things that, so I... You know, as I've mentioned uh, at least once a podcast, I think I used to cover the Red Sox, uh, and that was uh, grammatically difficult because oh, impossible! You know, you'd have Sox, uh, and like I, th- I feel like the style that most other people who covered them went with was uh, S O X apostrophe, mm-hmm. no S for for when it, you were using Red Sox. That's as, what I as yeah, that's what I always went with. Uh, and I never, I always hated that. So I would. I would put the S. I would, you know, in all those cases, I would always try to just do Boston's. Right. Uh, try to work the story around so I can say Boston's. Uh, and then also, you know, you would have if like you're t- you're talking about an individual player, like you know the way you would talk about an individual Met. He's been the Met that's hit the best lately. This is the issue. Or, yeah. And you'd say he he's. You would say like if I were pronouncing it to you, I'd say he's the Red Sox who has hit the best. But you still spell it S O X. That is how it was explained to me. Uh, according to, I guess, Providence Journal style. Yeah, I for me, it's always just right around it. Like he is uh, has been the best player on. He has been the best hitting player on the Red Sox, or he is the Boston player who has been hitting the best. Yeah, it it, it there's like 
an instance or two per season where you're like, I can't get around this. I got to go with it. He's a Red Sox. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, you know, don't, it's not that, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to bring up why the Red Sox are named that. Uh, it's, but like, it's a, it's something they get away with just because they always have. Right? You're your Red Sox with an X. Like, that's just a weird, if some, if a new team, if a new team started and there were no Red Sox and no White Sox and some new team, just exist like the, the port. We're gonna be the Portland Blue Sox, and we're spelling it with an X. We'd be like, that is the lamest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. I mean, that's true of so many team names. That's like true. The Knickerbockers, right. the the Philadelphia. I mean, the Mets lost their weekend series to the Philadelphia Philadelphians. Right. I mean, uh, the Mets. The Mets itself is not like you know. It's there's nothing. I don't know. There's nothing especially compelling about the name Mets. I just I, I I love the brief period in Philly's history where they like attempted to also be the Blue Jays and then gave up on it very quickly. It wasn't going to work. You're the Phillies. Uh, I we have we also have several questions. So, so we also got a bunch of questions, and this is an important one. What are we going to do if the Mets really do fall out of contention? Like, are we gonna are, are we gonna just talk books on the podcast, or will we talk like past games? Because there's only so much you can be like. When is Mark Vientos coming? Well, I mean, uh, we have some experience with this last year uh, in 2020. Speak for yourself. Uh, when, when, yeah, when, when Pete and I uh, had some, some guests on and, you know, uh, would talk about old old things that happened with the Mets and, and what's going on uh, currently. I mean, look, the, the Mets, uh, one of the good things about covering uh, a team like the Mets, a franchise like the Mets, uh, is that the fan base is always so engaged that uh, the Mets are never irrelevant. Uh, and that's true not just in... Uh, uh, if it's September 15th of a season where they're going to lose 95 games, uh, and it's just as true in the middle of December that offseason uh, when they're in the in between 95 lost seasons. like the, They're always a relevant team. People always care deeply about them, and we'll always have something to talk about, uh, even if it is just uh, like the Mets in literature, because we can do that too. That's a podcast. You're never more than a week away from the Mets doing something outrageously stupid. Right. So there's always there's always something. I mean, I, I I hosted a Mets podcast from like 2009 to 2012. Right. So like I've been through the, the darkness and, and made it out with a with a decent podcasting uh, routine. So we will we will get you through it, I would say, if you're if you're wondering about that. But, yeah, we may have to fall back on different things besides like, hey, how are the Mets going to stay uh, in contention? If they don't stay in condition, but I, the season's not over yet. The season's not over yet, right? There's like a, we're this is the this is rock bottom, maybe hopefully, and uh, and maybe things get things can turn around. Things can turn around. We I still think the offense should be better, but Matt has a great question about why the offense is so bad, and it's something you've written about a little bit, and it's something I really don't know understand uh, all that well. Um, it's a hard thing to make sense of. Matt writes. Uh, prior to the Philly series, MLB.com had a story about the Mets' offensive woes, uh, and I found myself wondering if there's uh, if there's a weird duality of this offense, effective when uh, not making contact, not effective when making contact. And he linked me to an article from, from Mike Petriello, a friend of mine, works for MLB.com. He's like their stat cast guy. Um, and he took a pretty deep dive into the stats uh, on the Mets offense. And a, a lot of the things are, are some of the things we talked about. He also uh, talked quite a bit at length that, about the, the effects of City Field and how perhaps City Field uh, suppresses offense more than we realize. Um, but also makes this point that um, 
the Mets, he says, the Mets swing at strikes more than all but three other teams. Uh, only one team takes fewer called strikes. Uh, I think now a couple teams have jumped ahead of them, but uh, he says when they're taking, this is from Mike, uh, he says when they're taking balls or strikes of any variety, they're one of baseball's mo- most efficient offenses, meaning like that when they're when they're playing more patiently, they're, I guess, playing better. Um, and he says, when yet when they contact the ball, they're ahead of only the Cardinals, Rangers, D-backs, and Pirates in terms of generating value. They have only the 24th best quality of contact. They have the fifth worst run value on that contact. Uh, six fewest homers, fewest extra base hits. Um, he also points out that they're the least effective base running team in baseball, but that obviously doesn't make nearly as big of a of a dent as the the thing with the offense, which is just a, a complete lack of of quality qu- contact. And uh, and Matt says taking that together with what Quattlebaum, Hugh Quattlebaum said in Tim's Q and A last week, what Pete Alonso said Sunday about the process being good, could it be that this is actually a process issue? Is the idea of swinging at and taking the right pitches overemphasized at the expense of better quality contact, or am I reading too much into a 110 game sample? There's a lot there. I, I really, I really zoned out. Can you repeat that? Uh. Um, I think <laughs> so. I, I think I'll, I'm just going to go kind of stream of consciousness, different thoughts off of uh, the the really good story that that Mike had done last week. Um, you know, I think it's hard to get a, a total reading of the quality of contact because of City Field, because it's not just like you know, it's not just that the Mets score fewer runs at home or they hit fewer home runs at home, all which is true. Uh, it has been true really since the inception of City Field. Uh, it's also that some of the more advanced things that we look at, things like barrel rate and exit velocity, those are also down at City Field. And City Field is kind of an anomaly in the way it seems to suppress exit velocity uh, for anyone. Uh, and uh, could that be? So is that like, like a is that like an eye like a bat like the batter's eye is bad or something like or or does hitters don't because because you know it, it could you can say okay well Coors Field the ball flies further because the environment is different but why would a park suppress barrel rate? The really the the uh, most compelling uh, potent theory that I had heard uh, was it was just like the way they stored the baseballs. <laughs> um, however, they stored the baseballs uh, wasn't great or some or didn't allow you know if affected. Uh, the quality of contact from 2015 to 2019. As as we've talked about here, the the Mets uh, were one of the teams that installed the humidor uh, prior to 2020 to store the baseballs in. And last year was the year where City Field played a little bit better for offense than it had uh, in previous years. It was less aberrational uh, than it had than than most other than the other years it had been uh, open. And this year, it's kind of gone back how, to. I'm sorry. How you know, I, how were they storing the baseballs? That would be different. I don't know. That would be different from the way all of the other like what? How do you store baseballs if not like in a closet somewhere? Maybe the the room where they had it was too cold or too warm. I I, I don't. I'm not a physics <laughs> professor. Ted. I'm just I, telling I, you the theory that. I want to know like what on- wacky met stuff happened to make that the case. Because like, I have no doubt. That that's true, right? Like, I, I am 100% certain now that you have presented this theory that the Mets were doing something, like, flagrantly wrong in how they stored baseballs. I just want to know what that was. Why did the equipment manager go into the bathroom with a sack of footballs at Gillette Stadium? Right. We'll never know, Ted. Um, so uh, that that's the most compelling thing I've heard about that, like, about why 
the, the difference in city field exists quite to the extent that it has. Uh, I think in general, you look, the, as, as Mike's article pointed out, you know, even with that context, the Mets were uh, the best slugging team on the road in 2020, and they're 16th, I believe, uh, this year. Uh, 13th best, sorry, 13th best on the road this year in terms of slugging. Uh, so, you know, it, it's one thing to say, like, maybe if they were just on the road the whole time, uh, their slugging numbers would be better. At the same time, they come off a one and six road trip where they didn't score very many runs. They look pretty bad overall. Uh, I, getting back to the initial question, like, should the Mets approach be different? You know, the, the approach that they had, there, there's kind of the, the two different approaches that they've had in the last couple of years. Uh, first with, with Pat Russler, uh, when he was the hitting coach was kind of the Kevin Long approach. Uh, going back to, to earlier in the decade uh, and and is more of what Hugh Quattlebaum preaches, which is, uh, a you know, swing at the right strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's the line, um, let me look it up in, in the Quattlebaum story that I did the other day uh, about, uh, that, you know, the way you, you do well as an offense is by attacking the right pitches in the strike zone. Um, you know, your success is going to be... Ter- is going to be determined by the pitches you swing at. And the best pitches, the pitches that get driven the most, are the ones usually in the center of the zone. And so, you know, deciding what you swing at is going to determine the quality of your contact. The And you're going to take your best swing all the time, your A swing, they call it. Uh, and so, you know, we've heard Luis Rojas has talked about A swings more this year than he did last year. Uh, and, you know, that leads to some guys not cutting down their two-strike approach. They're still trying to put their best swing on it, even in an 0-2 count, for instance. And then there's more of the the approach that Chili Davis preached uh, during 2019 and 2020 with the Mets uh, that, you know, you wanted to uh, adapt to the circumstances, kind of go with the pitch at times, uh, you know, in a two strike count. Don't be afraid to hit it the other way. Use the whole field and try to hit line drives. You know, it's, it's more about line drives through the ball than getting under the ball uh, for fly balls and potentially home runs. Uh, and the, the thing is, both of those approaches work differently for different guys. Mm-hmm. There's guys that the, that the A-swing approach is really going to resonate with. Brandon Nimmo has talked about how that resonates with him, and he's not the guy you would you right. think that would resonate with because of the way he takes pitches. Uh, but also uh, the Chili Davis approach really really connected with Dominic Smith, a guy who got into trouble in the minor leagues when he tried to hit too many home runs and tried to be kind of your tip, prototypical power-hitting first baseman. And when he got back to using an all-field line drive approach, really excelled in 2020. Uh, so it's it's got to be a mix. In, I don't think you can have a one-size-fits-all organizational philosophy in, in terms of hitting. It's got to be tailored more individually than that. Uh, and uh, I don't know what the failure is necessarily in the process. I just know, as I wrote on Monday morning, like if you know Rojas has been talking for at least a week now about how they, they seem unprepared to hit fastballs, uh, which uh, very way to be a major like a leaguer. weird thing yeah. to be unprepared for. And... Uh, and it's just gotten worse in the days since he brought it up. And it seems like that that should not be a week-long or weeks-long thing to fix. Uh, it should be something you're able to enact a little bit quicker. So I wonder if the, pro- you know, if the process could be more refined in terms of uh, reacting and adapting to the issues that are plaguing the offense at hand. And again, it's, it's tough to speak about it as a collective because it's really just a whole bunch of smaller individual issues expressing themselves at the same time. Yeah, and that was a, one of Mike's conclusions in, in the MLB.com article. It was like a, a giant portion of the Mets' struggles is that 
Conforto and Lindor and to a somewhat lesser extent, Dominic Smith have all so far uh, underperformed expectations this year. Yeah, that, th- that those guys have not been what you expect them to be. And it's for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Lindor was off early in the season uh, and, and seemed to be, you know, basically since June 1st has been hitting much better, but then got hurt. Conforto got a slow start to spring training uh, and then uh, had his, his own injury issues. He wasn't playing well before that, but has, has been uh, in more of a slump since then. Seems like he might be coming out of it in the last week. He's 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 the guy really in the lineup that does seem to be making harder contact and hitting into some hard outs. Uh, and then you know even it's you've got those guys. Smith is is underperforming last year. I don't think it's 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 not stunning that Don, Dominic Smith has a 100 OPS plus or, or slightly below that. Uh, but you certainly thought he was going to be better than that uh, given the way he hit last year. Uh, and then you don't have anyone really overperforming like JD Davis has but it's in a small number of at-bats because he missed so much time. Alonzo is about where you'd expect him to be. McNeil is lower than you'd expect him to be, but not that much lower. He's still an above-average hitter. Uh, so, they, don't, you know, it's not, like, evened out by anyone. Like, Lindor and Conforto's really large struggles compared to what you would have expected uh, haven't been mitigated by uh, anyone going off and, and having, like, uh, you know, Richard Hidalgo's eight-game run in 2004 or whatever over the course of the first four That is months. a great pull. Is that is it bad that that's like my first example of a random guy on the Mets getting hot for an extended? You know, you don't have like Jose Valentin from 2006 just having a, a really good offensive season for you out of nowhere and becoming one of your best hitters. Like that's that's what you would need to happen in a situation like this to, to compensate for uh, some of the other guys not coming through the way you expect. And that's kind of the thing that that uh, is often the differentiator between a first place team and and a disappointing team, right? Like because every it's like. There's uh, design has a huge has a huge uh, is a huge component of building a good baseball team that's undeniable. But every really really good baseball team has at least uh, one or two guys who it's like whoa that guy came out of nowhere. Well, yeah, like I, I go back to uh, the 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 2013 Red Sox. Where, you know, they won the World Series, uh, and then in 2014 they finished in last. And I remember writing for Baseball Prospectus about that and using like Mike Carp, another mm-hmm. classic name from Mets history. Yeah. As an example of like, you know, in 2013, Mike Carp was a part-time player for the Red Sox, got almost 250 plate appearances, had an 885 OPS, like came through all the time, hit a pinch hit grand slam to win a game in Tampa against the second place team in the division. Like whenever they needed someone to step up, Mike Carp was there. A year later, uh, he was hurt a lot, like when uh, Mike Napoli got hurt and they needed Mike Carp to fill in at first base for the next two weeks. Carp got hurt the next day. He hit 175. He had a 48 OPS plus. And he got re- got DFA'd by like July or August. Uh, and that's like, you know, Mike Carp being awesome one year and terrible the next is is the shorthand for how one season can be so charmed and one season not. Uh, and, you know, the, the Mets have not had a charmed season from a hitting perspective. They haven't had any of those guys. They've had some big hits from those guys Peraza you go back to the game in Miami in May when uh, Jake Hager and Janeshwi Fargus uh, and Khalil Lee like all got their first major league hits seemingly in order in extra innings or something like that uh, to win a game Uh, they've had individual instances like that but they just haven't had the uh, amassed uh, experience of guys coming through unexpectedly uh, while other guys you expect to come through have not I just pulled up just like out of out of curiosity. I pulled up the White Sox baseball reference page this year. The White Sox are in first place in the AL Central, having a great year. Look like they're going to make the playoffs. Um, some guys having 
uh, like 115 or above OPS pluses for the for the White Sox this year include Andrew Vaughn, Brian Goodwin, Adam Engel, uh, and then uh, all above 100, Jake Lamb, who's been kicked around a bunch, Gavin Sheets, Sebi Vavala, Zavala, not a name I've ever heard before in my entire life, is a catcher on the White Sox with a 109 OPS plus. Like, that's a team where everybody they call upon is just doing it, and like sometimes that magic just sort of hits for a team. Sebi Zavala had a three-homer game last week. It was the first three homers of his career. I was on vacation. Was basically... It was basically the closest thing someone had come to pulling a new in heist. Uh, well, that's why he's—that's uh, why he has a 109 OPS plus because of that one game. I guess if you if you took that out, he only has 10 hits on the year. It's a very short, short, <laughs> small sample size. So, so minus those three home runs, he's probably not over 100 on, on the OPS plus. But uh, the you know the point stands right. Like it's like I, I don't know. And you can say like, oh no, this is process. This is a hitting coach. This is the manager. This is the the clubhouse chemistry. Um, and maybe it's all of those things, but maybe also sometimes it's just like, Hey, like everything, everything came up White Sox this year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we have to account for like the change in, uh, hitting coach, uh, like even if you prefer as the Mets front office does kind of the way, the approach that Quattlebaum suggests over the one that Chili Davis does making that change at that point in the season is going to be disruptive to an extent. It's going to take, especially because, you know, Quattlebaum and Kevin Howard were new to the organization this offseason. They didn't have a lot of time in spring training with these guys. Uh, that was not a, going to be a seamless transition. Uh, you know, when I talked to Hugh the other day, uh, he said, you know, I asked him when he got comfortable with each guy with, with the team's swings, like on an individual level. And he said it was ba- basically a few weeks ago, you know, mm-hmm. so it was that change was made in late April. It took probably two and a half to three months before he was up to speed and, and knew the guys as well as uh, Chili Davis. And, and especially, you know, Tom Slater, uh, the assistant hitting coach, was a guy who had been there for a, a few years and had worked with guys for a while. So he had a really good beat on on where their swings were at. So, you know, that that's when you make the in-season changes like that, especially when they're changes kind of a philosophy and, and of at least vocabulary, different hitting coaches use different words right. to express the same concept. Uh, there's going to be a, a step back. There's, it's going to be harder for guys who are in a slump at that point to connect with the new guy and to, to build on it going forward. And I, I think the Mets might have underrated that impact, even if they like the change for the long term. I remember one time, uh, I believe it was Dale Swaim was the hitting coach for the Royals, and I asked him something about like the Royals' approach, and he was like, "Well, we got to get our dick in the dirt." And it was, what is that? Like that is like a like this that is the type of thing that like a a hitting coach says that might make sense to some of his hitters, and it's like that. I'm gonna need a, a long translation of of whatever the heck that means. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Directv satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on Directv with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on Directv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Directv has the most MLB games. Visit Directv.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I want to leave you with one thought. Um, just because I want to get this in before before it becomes a thing. If Rojas is not back yet next year, do you think there's any chance they revisit Carlos Beltran? Oh, I, I was ready for you to ask if they were going to revisit Bobby Valentine. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, which I, I don't think they should. He's do. making the rounds. Uh, he's on a media tour right now. But uh, but I know, well, he's he's got he's got bigger concerns right now. 
in Stanford. Right. Um, Belcher, I mean, they could. He's around. Think about it. Uh, but I mean, Al, Al Score and you know, A.G. Hinchard are both managing, right? There's like, why? Right. I mean, I, you know, we both know there's no reason like there, it doesn't make any sense morally, ethically, legally or whatever to keep Carlos Beltran out of the game when basically everyone else from that Astros team is is either still in baseball or or welcome back in baseball unless uh you know they've the separate uh gm incident assistant gm incident i forget that guy's name which is probably for the best um but uh you know i don't know if can it be beltron can it be beltron tim it it can be beltron i i think you know you make the moral case that that if the other guys are back you can you can bring beltron back uh I think the thing that you think about is uh, so AJ Hinch and Alex Cora were not just guys with like previous major league managerial experience. They were they successful were, uh, guys who had won the World Series. You know, you might put an asterisk next to Hinch's. Uh, you might. But, I mean, not also, for nothing. You might put an asterisk next to Cora's too. True, uh, but I, I think if you had polled major league executives at the time of that story came out in 2019 and asked who they thought the best managers in baseball were, those guys would probably be the names you saw the most, or at least in the top three or five. Uh, there, there was a wide perception that those were two of the best managers in baseball. Uh, Carlos Beltran, you know, a lot of his candidacy with the Mets initially in late 2019 was built off of the idea of his connection with his ability to connect to players, uh, the, the way he would build a clubhouse culture that you liked. Uh, and you have to wonder on some level, and, and I remember talking about this in, in 2020, you know, at the time when they were letting go of Carlos Beltran, that I, something I didn't, um, factor in early enough when that story initially came out in November was, man, it's got to be tough to be a pitcher if Carlos Beltran is your manager, right? Like, you've got to be pretty upset about what he did uh, with the Astros. And, and like, Marcus Stroman, I think, was was pretty vocal about uh, what Houston did. Uh, so I, I think that affects, like, his resume is not as appealing to you as a team hiring as it was in 2019 because of this. The same is true for Hinch and Cora. But kind of the pros on their resume outweighed the cons in Detroit's mind and in Boston's mind. Uh, there's still the chance that in the Mets' mind, if they were to make a managerial change, the pros on Carlos Beltran's resume outweigh this con. But I think the balance is not, uh, you know, it's a, it's a harder balance for him than it is for guys who had won the World Series in the, in the dugout already. Well, they can chalk up as another pro the fact that uh, Metrospective co-host Ted Berg strongly endorses this idea. And, and that Carlos Beltran apparently makes a delicious tres leches cake, which uh, is something that every clubhouse could use. Yeah, he owned a restaurant for a while. I mean, Beltran is a, he's a man about town. I mean, you can't, you can say, you could talk about whether or not he fostered a good clubhouse culture. Hard to come up with a better clubhouse culture than the one that successfully cheats its way to the World Series championship without anyone saying a thing. Right. So, you know, for, for whatever you want to say about how they got there, I wouldn't mind if for just one time, the Mets could be that team that cheats its way to a championship. Uh, you know, you can say that. Uh, I don't know that every Mets fan agrees with you. Ah, probably more. They're all cheating. Everybody's than... cheating. They're all trying to cheat, right? Just, just. I wanted the team that cheats successfully. <laughs> that is that is one way to go about fandom. That's that's how I think most football fans feel. Yeah, I mean, the Patriots are good with it, right? I know a lot of Patriots fans, and they all seem to sleep at night. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that, you know, maybe, maybe not anymore with, with Tom in Tampa, but we'll see. Tim, it has been real as always. Peace out. Adios.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.